Welcome to North Shore Church. So glad that you're here today on this beautiful, sunshiny spring day. Spring in the UP usually lasts about a week or so. <laughs> so today we're going to be reading from Ephesians, Ephesians um, 1, starting at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what hope is to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to be in your presence here this morning, Lord, for the ability to get here on our own power, to hear your inerrant word spoke through Pastor Duncan, to hear the glorifying music that we heard, Lord, from our musicians. Allow your word to come alive in our hearts this morning. May our hearts be changed this morning, that, that we leave here different than when we came. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins, as they are many. We have not lived up to our standards in which you have set for us. For Paul tells us that it's by grace that we've been saved. And thank you, Lord, for that unending grace that we need all through the day, every day. Teach us to um, move to be more like your son Jesus in every area of our life. And thank you for his life and death on the cross where the check was written and it was cleared on Easter Sunday. Lord, we just uh, please just give us strength as, as we uh, continue to uh, be in your presence here this morning. We pray today for our church. We pray for John Hickson, Lord. Uh, just give him straight strength to um, just be a witness to you and to continue sharing the gospel with every chance that he gets. Lord, we pray for Mark and Annie Maxfield for the loss of Annie's mom a few weeks ago. Continue to give peace and comfort for them. We pray today for Rob Lobbs, and we thank you for the successful surgery that took the cancer out, Lord, and we pray that it stays out, and we pray for the recovery for him as well. We pray for Brenda Levin. Lord, help lessen or even take away those terrible headaches that she gets every day, nearly every day, or probably every day, Lord. Help comfort her. And also, we just help that, uh, please help her with the challenges of the new medication that she's on, Lord, that it, would, that it would work and be successful. Lord, we pray for each one of us that are experiencing rough spots, and we all have them, Lord. We live in a sinful world. We live in a fallen world. We need you, Lord. So help each one of us that's going through the trials that we are, Lord, just to help and restore us, Lord. And um, just give us your peace and patience to endure the, the suffering that we are told in Scripture that will be present for Christians, for everybody. Lord, we pray for the men's ministry that you would uh, raise up leaders 
um, for that. And we also pray for the church secretary position, Lord, that you would bring someone forward. We, we thank you for the ministries that are going well. We thank you for Shore Lunch, which we're going to have in just an, over an hour from now. We thank you for the workers and volunteers that are helping with that. Um, bless all the ministries at our church, Lord. Help our church to thrive and that folks that would get to experience you, they would meet you here, Lord, and that, again, they would leave different. They would leave here differently than they came. Lord, remove anything that would cause us to not worship you the way you want us to. Take away any of distractions of our day later on today or maybe what happened yesterday. Just take all that away, Lord, that we can worship you with our whole entire heart and mind. We pray for Pastor Duncan, uh, that your spirit would guide his words this morning, that nothing is said or left unsaid that you wouldn't want us to hear this morning. Help take out our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. For it's on Christ the solid ground I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen. Well, this morning we again pick up our series in the book of Ephesians. Paul has written this wonderful letter. Before our break for Holy Week, we finish the first major section of the letter that you may recall is really one long sentence from verse 3 to 14 in the original language. And Paul included in that section some pretty dense stuff some pretty thick theology about the spiritual blessings that God has given to believers in Christ. And to just list them again. First, we were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. We've been predestined for adoption as sons. We've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus, forgiven of our sin. We've been given previously hidden revelation that all things across all ages in some way point to Jesus Christ. We've obtained an inheritance, and that inheritance has been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that guarantees that inheritance. Three times in this section, Paul states that God gives these believers these spiritual blessings for the praise of his glory, that his glory might be praised. That's ultimately why he gives these blessings. One reason it's important for us to have this list of blessings fresh in our minds is because as we begin this next major section of this letter, this chapter in verse 15, Paul opens the section with these words, for this reason. Okay, whenever Paul opens a section with words like that or therefore, or in as much of, um, that's, a, that's indicating that this phrase, he's connecting the first part of the chapter with the second part. They're not isolated from one another. And so we need to find out what is going on here that's connected to this section on spiritual blessings. It's unspeakably important, this section, even more in some ways than the first section, because this part of the letter calls us to something that most Christians don't feel very good about, and that is their prayer life. Most, very few Christians would say, I am satisfied with my prayer life. And verses 15 to 23, as Scott read, is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. 
the first one. He does another one in chapter 3. They're both classic, very helpful prayers. But he relates this prayer to the blessings that he put earlier for this reason. So before we even get into Paul's prayer, we're only going to do a very little bit of the prayer today. We're going to spend our, our time today mostly in just preparatory things so that we can understand Paul's prayer more fully. First, we have to understand what this connection is between the first section of the spiritual blessings and this second section of prayer because this reveals this incredibly important truth for our health and our growth. To discover the connection between these two sections of chapter one, we need to know, first of all, what's the main burden that Paul has of this prayer? What's he really concerned about? And he, does, he says that very clearly in verse 17. As we'll see in just a moment, Paul is praying for the Holy Spirit to work in the lives or in the hearts of believers so that they will know God. That's his main request. Everything leading up to that is lead up to that. Everything that comes after that is in some way an elaboration of that. That believers would know God is Paul's central concern. That's his prayer. Paul doesn't give prayers in his letters very often, so when we see a prayer, and that's the major concern, we know this is really important. Um, you may be thinking, well, as believers, don't we know God? Isn't part of that what this is about? I mean, why is he praying for believers to know God? Well, he, he prays this kind of prayer all the time. Later on, he will pray that, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. He's praying for believers. Well, Christ already dwells in our hearts through faith. What he's saying in both of those cases is that you would know God more intimately, that you would know God at a deeper level. It's also important for us to know that what Paul talks about when he talks about knowing God is not necessarily the same things that many believers think about when they think about knowing God. Many believers mistake knowing God for knowing about God. This knowing God that Paul is praying for here is not about knowing God. It's not about knowing more theology, like the theology we saw in the first section. Some of you may have not felt at all blessed when we went through that heavy theological section, because it is. It's dealing with election and predestination and adoption and redemption, and those are terms weighted down with theological content. In his prayer here, Paul is not praying that believers would intellectually master those theological concepts. He clearly thinks they're important. He spent 12 verses on them. But what he's praying here is that we would have an experiential, a vibrant, a satisfying, a personal relationship with God that would be growing in all of those qualities. One of the ironies of evangelicalism today is that in our evangelism, it's common and it's certainly appropriate to ask an unchurched person we know if they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's kind of a stock phrase within evangelicalism. But ironically, far too many evangelicals haven't really thought all that much about what that personal relationship looks like to them as a professed Christian. We get so concerned about the moral issues, the things we know we're supposed to be doing and not doing, that we can forget about the relationship. We must never forget that God is a person. Now, he's a divine person. He's not like us, but he is a person, and he has personality. 
And he is knowable, and he's made himself accessible to human beings on a personal level through Jesus Christ. And he wants us to know him. He wants us to relate to him, not just personally, but intimately. He's our father. And that assumes an intimate relationship. Before the fall of humanity, which was the ideal, without sin in the picture, Genesis is clear. God walked among his humans in the cool of the day. He knew them that well, intimately, personally. He created us for that purpose. The intimate level that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians is one like we see back in the garden in Adam and Eve. Genesis 4.1 says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now that word for this most intimate of human relationships is what Paul is praying that believers would have toward God. This expresses a covenant knowledge. They're in covenant with God. This is a bonding relationship. This is a pleasurable relationship with God. We know this is what Paul is talking about because of other places in both the Old and the New Testament where God speaks of this depth of intimacy in these kind of marital terms. Look at Hosea 2, 19 and 20. He says, and I will betroth you to me forever. God's talking to the Jews. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Do you hear that? So he uses that word know in connection with this betrothal husband-wife relationship. Paul talks about the church as the bride of Christ in the New Testament. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So you hear all of these marital overtones in this understanding of no. In the New Testament, God knowing God in this intimate sense is equated to loving God. And we know that from two verses in 1 John, when you put them back to back. Listen to this. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, it says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. So the, there's the focus, know him. This we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So knowing God, as Paul prays for believers, implies a relationship where we keep his commandments. Not perfectly, but as a general pattern of life. So knowing God is expressed through keeping his commandments. But then look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So you hear in those verses, knowing God is used interchangeably with loving God. That's expressed by keeping his commandments, both knowing God and loving God. So Paul in this prayer in Ephesians is asking God for believers that we would have that kind of knowledge of God. This is a knowledge of God that is surprisingly, blessedly intimate. That implies a very important diagnostic question that believers should be asking themselves on a reasonably regular basis is, am I coming in my walk with God to know him more intimately? Not am I learning more theology or more doctrine, it's possible, and we all met these people, to know a lot of doctrine without knowing God in this sense. There are a lot of seminary professors who are not going to be in heaven. 
James chapter 2 says, you believe that God is one. That's a point of doctrine, the oneness of God. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So Satan knows far more theology. He knows the Trinity. He knows the oneness of God. He knows all of that stuff. He clearly doesn't know God this way, though, which is what Paul is praying for his church. And that takes us back to this connection between the first section of the chapter and the section of this chapter, the first section with all this dense theology, and the second one where he's praying for the church. So what is the relationship? The, re the connection between these two is that Paul wants believers to more deeply experience and appreciate spiritual blessings like election and predestination and adoption and redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And his main burden in this first section is what he has said repeatedly, and that is that these spiritual blessings would be to the praise of the glory of God. But for the blessings to glorify God, for us to praise God for those blessings, they must not simply be listed in a text. They have to be experienced in a life. And that's what he's praying for. On a practical level, a spiritual blessing that is not experienced is not much of a blessing. And it doesn't glorify God as much as a blessing unless it's experienced and appreciated by the believer. To be predestined for adoption is infinitely more appreciated if you know more intimately the glorious Father who has adopted you. To be redeemed and forgiven of sin is greatly magnified in the life of the believer as he or she comes to know the Redeemer. So by praying that we would come to know God more intimately, Paul is implicitly asking God to make his blessings real to us because that can happen only in a context of this personal intimate relationship with God as we come to know him better and better. In other words, Paul is praying that these blessings would transform from being theological truths about salvation to expressions of love from God. That they would travel from our head down to our hearts, that these blessings would result in experiencing and worshiping God much more deeply. Paul's praying for us to know God so that we would know what it is about God that makes him a redeeming God, a forgiving God, a predestining God, an electing God. That Paul follows these theologically rich truths in the first part of the chapter, that he follows that with prayer, teaches us something especially as he prays for the Holy Spirit to do this. And that is only the Holy Spirit can bring us into an experiential knowledge, an intimate relationship with God. And that work of the Spirit is, as Paul models for us here, done most often through prayer. Sometimes you hear someone praying and it strikes you that, you know, this guy or this girl sounds like you know, they're talking to a close friend. It's not familiar in the sense that it's not full of reverence. They just, you can just tell, these people have spent a lot of time together. They've done a lot of talking together. There's nothing formal or rigid or canned about the way they pray. When this is real and they're not simply acting as if it's real, it's because that person knows God on an intimate level. He or she has this experiential knowledge of God in much the same way that he or she has an experiential relationship to his spouse or her spouse or a close friend. 
Now, we don't want to give the impression that having this experiential relationship with God could in some way substitute or even be possible without knowing theology and doctrine. There are people in the church who say things like, you know, you can have your theology. I just want to love Jesus. <laughs> okay, that's misguided. Because it's theology, the truths about God that inform our knowledge of God, and it fuels our love for God. Listen to Paul's goal for all of his doctrinal, all of his theological teaching in 1 Timothy 1.5. What is it that Paul's trying to achieve by teaching all of this doctrine? Here's what he says to Timothy, because he's just charged Timothy to teach sound doctrine. And he says this to follow up. He says in verse 5, the aim of our charge, this charge to Timothy to teach sound doctrine, the aim of our charge, the goal, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love for God, love for his children, a good conscience before God, and a sincere faith in God, they're all part of a healthy and intimate relationship with God. And Paul says, that it's his doctrinal or theological teaching that brings that about. That's the goal. So Paul taught doctrine so people would know God and love him more fully, not to fill their heads with theological content. When we teach our doctrine class here, the goal is not to produce experts in theology. It's the goal is to produce people who love Jesus more. The fact that Paul follows theology with prayer tells us that the main way you transfer Bible knowledge and Bible doctrine and Bible theology, like we saw in the first half of the chapter, you transfer that from being purely academic or intellectual to becoming experiential intimacy with God. The main way you get it from one to the other is through prayer. That's where this transfer happens mostly. That's his point. In in ordering this chapter the way he does. You meditate on truths like these glorious spiritual blessings. He said you chew them up over and over again in your mind and you thank God for them. You pray that you would understand God's blessings at a deeper level, at a heart level. You pray that you would be more grateful for those blessings. You pray that these blessings would produce tangible fruit in your life. It's prayer that causes those theological facts to become spiritual food that you eat and you savor and you praise God for. The very practical implication for us is that if you have a lukewarm prayer life, the level of real intimate knowledge of God that you have has to be fairly superficial. Because prayer is the anvil on which is hammered an intimate knowledge of God. Prayer is communion with God. And you cannot know someone well and intimately unless and until you spend time communing or fellowshipping with them. Another reason prayer is crucial to knowing God well and being spiritually mature is because without prayer, you can't wage effective spiritual warfare. One of the great challenges a faithful believer faces in his or her walk with God is knowing how to wage warfare and being able to respond to the assault of the enemy, the doubts that he throws our way, the fears, the condemnation the devil seeks to stick on us. It's part of the Christian life. It's very important that we learn how to overcome that. Jesus says of Satan in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And at the top of Satan's list, 
for believers is stealing and destroying their intimacy with God. A devout, intimate follower of Jesus Christ poses a tremendous threat to Satan for many reasons. Perhaps chief among them is that a joy-filled, devout believer who's intimate with Jesus, that person on a regular basis exposes Satan's lie that happiness can only be found in the things of this world, through wealth, through sex, through fame, through all the rest. A joy-filled, intimate lover of God communicates to the world that God is the one who satisfies and God is enough. And Satan will do anything he can to put that person under a rock because that's very dangerous to his kingdom. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul later will say in chapter 6 of Ephesians in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, how does that relate to prayer, spiritual warfare? Well, if you look carefully at Ephesians chapter 6, you'll see the answer. If you haven't noticed, this section on spiritual warfare places prayer in a uniquely prominent place in our fight against these dark forces. We'll see it when we get to chapter 6 more in depth, but Paul uses this metaphor of a soldier's armor to represent what God has given us to successfully wage warfare against the devil and stand against his attacks without folding up like a cheap tent. There's the belt of truth, there's the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. These are the necessary pieces of the, the armor that the believer has to put on in order to keep the enemy from knocking us for a loop when we're trying to walk before God. But after he's listed all of these pieces of armor, he concludes that section in verse six, chapter 6, verse 18, where he says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication or prayer for all the saints. Okay, that's a triple reference to prayer on the heels of his section on spiritual armor. What is that telling us? This is what amounts to a command to pray, and it's closely related to the armor of God. Now, he's not saying that prayer is another piece of the armor of God. He's saying something much more important than that. By so emphatically concluding this section on spiritual warfare with this incredibly repeated admonition to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, making supplication for all the saints. He's implying that prayer is what makes the pieces of armor effective. Prayer is what makes the pieces of armor effective. Without prayer, we're just spiritual toy soldiers dressed for battle but not able to successfully wage war. Richard Sibbs is right when he says that it's through prayer that we acquire the armor. It's through prayer that we learn to use the armor. Prayer brings about the power of God as we fight in the armor. We pray and God strengthens our faith, the shield of faith. We pray and an important scripture comes to mind to thrust in the devil's black heart. That's the sword of the spirit. Through prayer, God experientially firms up our trust that Christ is our righteousness. As all the pieces of armor are acquired and put on through prayer. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we're to pray for one another. 
It's as we intercede for one another, God sends his warriors to blunt Satan's attack against them. Spiritual warfare can't effectively be waged without prayer, which is one reason why it's that way that we get to know God. One more introductory issue before we get to the prayer itself. In verse 15, Paul begins the section with, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he begins the prayer. It's the faith and love of these Ephesians that causes Paul to thank God for them and pray for them. Why are these two words, faith and love, so frequently found together? Paul says in Colossians 1.4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. In 1 Timothy 1.14, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Those are just two verses of a half a dozen more that we could give where faith and love are are together. There's something there when you see that over and over again in the New Testament. So what is this relationship? Well, the relationship is seen in Galatians 5, 6, where Paul says, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. There's the relationship. Faith works through love. Faith produces. Faith is necessary to give birth to love. Faith is what God gives us to tap into the power of God in all areas, and that includes the power to love people, the power to love God. To put it another way, faith is the conduit through which love flows through us. As we trust in God's promises, as we believe the gospel and rejoice in God's goodness to us, his love for God, and all, that, all of that flows out of us as we're living in that state of faith. All of that faith frees us to express the love of God. Now, in the few minutes, let's look at, the, at verse 17 as we begin to look at the first part of this prayer. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul is asking the Father to give believers the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might grow in this intimate, personal, powerful knowledge of God. Now the fact that Paul is praying for this tells us something important, and that is that this intimate kind of communion with God is not something that we can achieve mechanically. By that I mean we can't achieve this knowledge of God simply or only through a spiritual behavior or a devotional exercise or a spiritual discipline. Bible reading, spiritual disciplines are indispensable to spiritual maturity. God powerfully uses those things in our lives. But Paul is praying that God would give the believers another gift that is absolutely necessary and essential for us to know God in an intimate way. He asks God to give this the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, What does he mean here? Is he talking about the Holy Spirit here? Or is he talking about something in our spirit? Well, the ESV, if you're looking at that translation, it gives it, it away from their understanding because they capitalize spirit. So in their view, they're saying it's the Holy Spirit. And all the scholars that I consulted talked about the fact that this is the Holy Spirit, but also it's the spirit within us. It's, it's a little bit like in John chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And they're talking about worship and where we're supposed to worship God from. And Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and 
truth. What does that mean, to worship him in spirit and truth? Well, certainly it means that God desires worship offered through the empowerment and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's also referring to God, worshiping God with our own spirit. And by that, spirit and truth means we must worship God with our hearts, but also with our minds. Worshiping God with spirit and truth means worshiping with our passion, with our emotion, but also rooted in the truth of God. It's not emotion for emotion's sake. That's emotionalism. So this same double usage of spirit is seen in Paul. On the one hand, the Holy Spirit can supernaturally reveal to us the Father and give us this knowledge of God. This kind of communion with God is overtly a supernatural work of God's spirit. Which is why simply doing a spiritual discipline or reading the Bible alone will not bring you this intimacy with God. All believers have spent many hours alone and not knowing that intimacy we've gone. We've all had that experience. This intimacy with God doesn't happen automatically when you open the book. It's always the work of the Spirit of God. That's why we must always pray and ask God's Spirit to use the Scriptures to cause us to know Him better. If you know the sweetness of communion with God in a Bible study, in a time of prayer, or in a sermon, it's because you've been acted on by the Holy Spirit. Something supernatural has happened in you. But this is also probably what the Spirit does in our spirit, to energize our sensitivity to God so that we want to seek after Him more. The Spirit of God makes our spirit hungry and receptive to this kind of intimate knowledge of God. Now, verse 18 gives us specifics of how this work of the Spirit in our spirit actually works its way out. He says, this is accomplished as we are, by God's grace, having the eyes of our heart enlightened. That's how this happens we get some understanding about what he means by having the eyes of our heart enlightened by reading another very similar text in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says in 4.6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. You hear the same emphasis. He's talking about light, enlightenment, and our hearts. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So both of these texts tell us we need light, we need Holy Spirit illumination in our hearts to know God in this intimate way. Now the phrase, the eyes of our heart, we need to break that down a bit. First, what does he mean by heart? Well, Paul means our spirits, our souls, where our affections, our desires, and our passions originate from. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying that our passions and our desires and our affections need to be enlightened, filled with light. By the Spirit of God, they have to be filled with insight into God in order to experience the reality of the glory and the beauty of God. Apart from the work of the Spirit of God, our hearts are darkened. If we're to know God intimately, our hearts must be repeatedly bathed in this kind of light to see the glorious reality of God and come to know Him intimately. The application for us in all of this as we close is really pretty intuitive. First, do you seek this kind of intimacy with God? This is what separates Christianity from a religion. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. 
And so, do you seek this kind of intimacy with God? Or is Christianity more for you about doing the do's and not doing the don'ts? That's really not what it is. You know, Islam, that's Islam. It's not Christianity. This kind of knowledge of God is something God desires for all of his children. If you belong to God through saving faith in Christ, the Lord of the universe wants to reveal himself to you. Someone has said that God has no favorites, but he does have intimates. Do you seek to be one of God's intimates? To be intimate with God is what Augustine, speaking of when he says, God loves each one of us as if we were the only one. God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us. Is this what you want from God? I hope it is, because if you don't, it's a very serious problem, because as we've seen, intimacy is what the Holy Spirit wants us to have with the Father. So if you don't want this, that means that either you do not have the Spirit of God and therefore are not a Christian, or the Spirit of God in you has been so thoroughly quenched that you aren't even able to sense his impulses anymore. Either one of those is calamitous. If you're not a Christian, know that to be a Christian is to increasingly grow in intimacy with God. It's not about being religious. It's not about doing a bunch of stuff and avoiding a bunch of other stuff. It's about knowing God personally and intimately. And if you haven't had that experience, then repent of your sin and run to the cross and find the forgiveness that the blood of Jesus alone can give you. A second application question is, is your prayer life translating your knowledge about God into a personal knowledge of God? Is your prayer life translating your knowledge about God into a personal knowledge of God? This is what Paul is implying here in chapter 1. If this is not true of your prayer life, your prayer life needs renewal. Now, how do you renew your prayer life? Well, there's a lot of ways. Let me just list a couple that have been very helpful for me and our prayer ministry team has been working in this. One great way is read a biography of a saint with a, with a wonderful prayer life. Again, the prayer ministry team can recommend one if you're interested because we're reading books to try to stoke our prayer life. The most famous biography of a prayer is the autobiography of George Mueller. It's not very long, short, and read that. It will get you excited about prayer. Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire from Jim Cimbala. Right now, the prayer ministry team is reading a book called Praying Hide. Again, all of those we're hoping will stoke the fire of our love for God and our desire to enter into meaningful prayer. Another way to do this is just, if you haven't done this, make a list. Now the list, there's nothing magic about a list. The list just gives you something to pray about because we can forget. So make a list. If you want the church's list, we send it out every week. You're welcome to it, but better to make your own list. Write down the requests you have for God. Personal requests for things like, God, increase my intimate knowledge of you. That should be on all of our prayers. Prayers like, God, break this destructive habit that I can't seem to get free of. God, heal these broken relationships. God, help, help me to grow to spiritual maturity. God, make me a better husband or wife or father or mother. Include a section of prayer for other people, for salvation of loved ones, for whatever you want to ask that would honor God. Pray through it every day. And finally, another one, 
regularly ask God to cultivate this intimate knowledge with him. We have to remember this, and this is so important. God wants this kind of relationship with us far more than we want it with him. Do we believe that? He sent his son to die to give us this kind of relationship with him. So we need to pray with boldness that he will do this for us. Now, as we pray and we do that, God will point things in our life that are not right with him and that are blocking our fellowship, that are blocking our, our intimate knowledge of God. But that's okay, that's a good thing, that's grace. That's a wonderful thing that God would do for us. May God give us the grace to develop this intimate personal knowledge of him for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, there's an awful lot here. And God, prayer is such a huge piece of our spiritual life. And we kind of all just assume we all do it and yet, if we really get open with each other, I don't know too many Christians that would say their prayer life is what it should be, or even close. Father, we say all these things about you, that you're our Father and that you're our first love, and we sing these praises to you on Sunday morning, and yet we don't have much of a prayer life. God, would you make us a people of prayer? Would you make North Shore Church a house of prayer? Father, so that we might know you intimately and that you might use us individually and as a church to do great things for you, for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.